This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Hello and welcome to the Llama Podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama Live Long and Master Aging is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Today, the scourge of Alzheimer's disease and news of some promising research. There is still no cure for this neurodegenerative disease that about 30 million people around the world battle with. It usually starts slowly with short-term memory loss and leads in most cases to death within a decade of diagnosis. But what if it were possible to detect early signs of the disease before the typical symptoms were observed? Could we modify our lifestyles, for example, to delay or even stop this deadly disease in its tracks? Well, I'm joined by Dr. Duke Han, who is a neuropsychologist and associate professor of family medicine at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Dr. Han is interested in factors that affect cognition and decision-making in ageing and recently published a study into the early detection of Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Han, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to be here. Before we talk in detail about the study. Just tell me more about the job that you do at USC. Sure. So I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. um, And so that means that part of my time, I see patients that are having cognitive problems. So problems with their memory or attention. And I help diagnose what may be going on from a disease standpoint, um, using cognitive tests and other tools. And is that essentially what neuropsychology is? Yeah, so neuropsychology, I think, is the study of how the brain functions in terms of cognitive abilities. Uh, Neuropsychologists also study uh, the brain from uh, an emotional standpoint, emotional functioning, and uh, use a a number of tools, uh, cognitive tools and neuroimaging tools to help understand what may be explaining behavior from a brain perspective. And where did you get your qualifications? And I'm curious, what prompted your interest in this area, aging and decision making? That's a bit of a longer <laughs> story. So we've got time. Uh, great. Uh, so I became interested in aging um, way back when in high school, uh, as part of a National Honor Society uh, required commitment to do some community service. I, uh, um, as a senior in high school, uh, picked a project at a local retirement home uh, where I would just assist the uh, day treatment uh, providers there um, as they interacted with uh, patients with severe dementia, with severe Alzheimer's disease. And I just uh, remember that experience being a very impressionable one. And so I've always been interested in dementia and aging, aging well, and the factors that um, may be associated with um, not aging or aging not so well. And uh, I've also had this interest in the brain. Um, So I've been interested in how the brain functions, um, how that is related to uh, aging and normal aging and how the brain may actually become impaired in the context of Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative disorders. And so this is uh, something that uh, got cultivated when I went on to um, college at, at Duke University. Uh, I remember taking a class with uh, a professor, Dr. Jim Blumenthal, and 
hearing of these cognitive tests that, that they would give to test people's memory. And I would say, I, I literally said this in class one time. It was a small class. And I said, I didn't know there were tests of memory. I didn't know you can do that. And so really that experience got me into the field of neuropsychology. And then as I progressed in my graduate school uh, training at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, I had the great privilege of being in the Harvard research setting where neuroimaging became a, a developed tool to help study the brain and brain functioning, and particularly in the context of neurodegenerative disease. And so really developed my interest in neuroimaging approaches there while also developing my interest in uh, the use of cognitive tools, measuring cognitive ability. You mentioned that when you worked at the retirement home, it made a great impression on you, working with these people who had dementia and were suffering from it. Yes. What yeah. kind of impression did it make on you as, as a young man? Yeah, so I, I will say my interactions with older adults were uh, relatively limited, I think, to my own grandparents who I loved very much, and I, I had not seen the devastation of dementia yet and how that manifests in someone's life until that experience. And I just remember being profoundly affected and saddened at, for what that really did to uh, someone's life. And so uh, it was something that I just always thought of. Is there anything that, that could be done to delay that or uh, improve the quality of life of older adults um, in the face of dementia? And that's, that's just always been a, um, a passion since then. I think it is striking oftentimes, isn't it, that when you are still relatively young, you are not exposed to these kinds of conditions unless you put yourself in the surroundings that you did in a nursing home like this. And I think that's perhaps one of the issues that uh, needs to be tackled as we move forward, a simple exposure of, of people at different stages in their lives to what is essentially a, a condition that affects people generally over the ages of 65 or 70. Sure. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that there's just something about our current modern society, which is unfortunate in the sense that I think there's an age stratification that happens in the, in the sense that we we don't we may not interact with um, people of different age backgrounds. And I, I think there's a lost opportunity in that to gain understanding. I, I'm a huge advocate for uh, um, intergenerational experiences. I think um, they're positive for everyone involved. Uh, so I, I would agree. So let's talk about Alzheimer's. And I gave a very brief uh, précis of, of what the condition is and the, sure. the fact that we still do not have a cure and there's a lot of education needed and a lot of research to really fully understand what causes Alzheimer's. Uh, could you summarise essentially where we are and what it is that we do know for certain about this disease and, and what sure. we don't? Yeah, so uh, there's been a lot of work in Alzheimer's, a lot of great advances, I, I would say, within the last uh, 15 to 20 years. It's been a topic of study uh, for uh, many uh, generations. And I, I think our understanding of Alzheimer's is that it's caused by two major neuropathological markers. So uh, this amyloid plaque, which are these um, deposits of protein that, that occur outside of the brain cells. And uh, the second marker being uh, these neurofibrillary tangles, which are these indicators of the, the actual brain cell from the inside folding upon itself. And so it's, it, it's almost as if the cells uh, in the brain are actually becoming misshapen. And uh, another term that gets used for that is tau. And so we know that these two uh, neuropathological markers of Alzheimer's disease um, interact or at least are part of the brain changes that happen in the context of Alzheimer's disease. There's been some work um, trying to un understand um, which 
which of these uh, may occur first. There's been some debate about that. Uh, for many years, it was thought that, that the amyloid accumulated in the brain first and that that then had some sort of interaction that led to the neurofibrillary tangles or the tau in the brain. There's been some suggestion that, that it may not be so uh, clearly sequential like that. And so that's uh, relatively new evidence, but it's it's pretty clear that these two uh, uh, neuropathological markers are involved in Alzheimer's disease. And I think within the last 10 to 15 years, there's been, in one of the revolutions of the, the study of the disease, the ability to image, um, to actually look at these neuropathological markers in the brain. And so through the use of uh, positron uh, emission tomography, um, neuroimaging, uh, tracers that actually trace and connect, um, essentially bind to these neuropathological markers in the brain, uh, we may be able to see these developing in the brains of uh, people who may go on to develop Alzheimer's disease, but may not have Alzheimer's disease yet. And so I think this has been the revolution uh, or some of the, the newest research in Alzheimer's disease. And so uh, then, and that has led to this study that I worked on. I wanted to see if these measures of cognitive markers uh, or these ca- uh, cognitive abilities are actually associated with these neuropathological markers in Alzheimer's disease. So essentially that is the crux of what you're looking at. The fact that the biological changes happened, it, it seems, much earlier than, than the symptoms. Uh, that, that's before correct. we as individuals become aware that there's something wrong and it's usually short-term memory loss that you, you realise at a certain point in your life that you're not quite as good as you used to be. And mm. the, the very fact that that is happening at a certain age doesn't mean to say that that is the beginning of Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's probably started several years before then. Uh, that's correct, yeah. And, and that's, that's been a, um, a relatively developed, a relatively new understanding of Alzheimer's disease is that these neuropathological markers build up in the brain um, before symptoms are really noticeable from a functional standpoint. And so that's this term preclinical Alzheimer's disease has been a popular term in the research um, just within the last 10 years or so. Uh, and a number of groups are trying to identify uh, markers of what we call preclinical Alzheimer's disease. So uh, where you have evidence of Alzheimer's disease, uh, meaning you have evidence of these neuropathological markers, but you don't have symptoms showing yet. And the idea is that the, the, the earlier that we can identify this preclinical Alzheimer's disease stage, the more that you could potentially intervene using medications or other sorts of behavioral uh, lifestyle changes. Just one question. It's a little bit of a digression at this stage, mm-hmm. and then we'll get into the details of, of the study and what you yeah. did. Mm-hmm. I refer to people having memory problems in sure. uh, at a certain age, and it can start in your 40s or 50s or perhaps even earlier than that. Yeah. In, in terms of everyday life, we often say, ah, I just can't grasp that name, can't remember that place name, whatever it is, which I think is probably fairly normal for for most people. And I think there's a confusion factor with some people, maybe as they're getting older, when does that change? And when does that become a symptom of something like dementia or Alzheimer's, as opposed to just being something that happens to most of us every day? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So there is a a normal decline in certain cognitive abilities that happens uh, with just normal aging. And I think the point that differentiates a a clinically significant decline in memory functioning is when it starts impacting someone's life to a significant degree. And so from a neuropsychology standpoint, we give tests that look at how someone performs on uh, various different memory functions. If they perform about uh, a a standard deviation to a a 1.5 standard deviation below what the normative 
sample is of their age group, that's when we start wondering if someone may have this early Alzheimer's condition. And so from a clinical standpoint, that's what we look for is that in reference to other people of your age or education background, for example, if someone is experiencing about a 1.5 standard deviation impairment or worse performance than their normative counterparts, then then we start worrying if, if there's some sort of clinically significant impairment happening. Now, one of the uh, problems with that, though, is that sometimes uh, some people may have just poor memory, and it, it's hard to know if someone, if this has been a clinically significant change in that person, in that actual person's life. And so that's one of the reasons why having um, data or some sort of benchmark or a baseline could be helpful in the sense that if someone's actually performing much worse at a later time and they and they have some sort of comparison that could actually help indicate that there might be something more meaningful going on. I mean, we all have good days and bad days, so we all could do worse on certain mm-hmm. memory tests. So it, this really needs – I'm not talking about the normal – memory lapses that I think uh, many of us have. This is really something that becomes a clinically significant decline in memory. And it's usually at that point that a patient gets brought in or it gets brought up with a doctor and uh, more tests are done to see if this might be uh, something else going on. And there are several points that come out of what you just said. Obviously, yeah. it's important to diagnose something like this as soon as possible, as it yeah. is with every condition. The sooner you know, the more you can do perhaps to maybe just delay the onset of the serious part of that illness. Yeah. And um, the other thing that comes to mind, of course, bearing in mind what you've just said, most of us go through our regular lives and, and see our doctors uh, frequently or infrequently, depending on your general state of health, rarely do the doctors carry out any kind of mental or brain analysis to Mm -hmm. see how good you are at at remembering things. The annual physical looks at your heart, blood tests, look at your your lipids and your cholesterol. Rarely do they give you a a memory test. Sure. Yeah, no, and I I agree. And I think from my perspective, obviously, as a clinical neuropsychologist, I think having some regular testing could actually be helpful. Uh, particularly to help diagnose potential uh, early Alzheimer's or uh, some other type of neurodegenerative disease. And I think that's one of the reasons why we made those points in this uh, article that uh, we're talking about is that it could be that having a regular cognitive checkup, just like we would for our physical health, our cardiovascular health, our our heart health, could be a way to track to see if there's uh, – an increased risk for something like an Alzheimer's disease. And the article you refer to is, is the write-up of your study, which is published in Neuropsychology Review just recently in the last few weeks. So let's talk about this uh, analysis of many different studies, wasn't it, to collate your data? That's correct. And so this is a, a, what's called a meta-analysis. And so this is not a single experiment that was done on its own. This is really looking at a whole group of published studies looking at a particular topic. And so what we did was we, we uh, looked at the medical literature to identify studies that have identified groups who were cognitively normal, so considered not impaired in any way, but differed with respect to these Alzheimer's neuropathological markers. So these amyloid and plaque and tangle neuropathological markers. And so uh, we wanted to see whether or not there was a, a perceivable difference in their cognitive abilities and their performance on cognitive measures that would essentially be attributable to whether or not they had this neuropathological marker for Alzheimer's disease. And so that was the premise for the study. And I think 
the assumption was that, and I think a lot of people would have this assumption, is that uh, th- these are considered cognitively normal people. So there would be no perceivable difference between whether or not they had these neuropathological markers for Alzheimer's disease. But our hypothesis was that there would be some difference, that even though it might not be within the impaired range, what we typically call the impaired range of cognitive functioning, that you could see some difference based on the fact that they are either positive or negative in these neuropathological markers of Alzheimer's disease. And so that's essentially what we found in this paper, was that the people who had the neuropathological marker of Alzheimer's disease performed worse on a cognitive measure versus those that didn't. Which, as you've explained, probably shouldn't come as a surprise. It seems logical. It does. I agree. And in that sense, I I would say that this uh, is a study that is consistent with, I think, what others have found in the sense that uh, cognitive decline does seem to happen before Alzheimer's is officially diagnosed. And I think one of the benefits of this study is that we can really see this across the whole literature by taking this meta-analytic approach. We can really see across all of the published studies, or at least a good portion of the published studies, that there is a perceivable difference in cognitive performance according to a neuropathological marker of Alzheimer's disease. Is it possible to put a, a timing on that to say what is the time lag between the beginning of the onset of, of the symptoms and when the, the decline actually first started? Yeah, so that we don't have that answer based on our study. And so unfortunately, we don't have a timing aspect where, for example, we can't see how they did before and compare it to how they're doing now. That actually would be uh, arguably one of the strongest pieces of evidence for the fact that uh, these neuropathological markers have an impact on cognitive decline. A number of groups have published studies that have looked at similar associations, but that's that's not what the study showed. This uh, was a simple hypothesis Um, that we wanted to try to test and really prove that there are perceivable differences in cognitive performance according to neuropathological markers of Alzheimer's disease, even in people that are considered normal. We're focusing on Alzheimer's. Uh, Is it fair to say that people who do experience some level of cognitive decline, they don't necessarily have this condition? Yes, that's correct. I think that's an important piece to include in this conversation. So if someone is experiencing some sort of cognitive decline, and this is borne itself out through cognitive testing or other uh, experiences, I I need to make clear that it doesn't necessarily mean that person has Alzheimer's disease. There could be a, a host of other reasons why someone might be experiencing cognitive decline in the context of aging. Um, it could be that uh, there are emotional factors involved. Or there could be uh, just simple life stage changes that can um, produce differences in performance on these cognitive tests. And so I just need to make clear that if someone is experiencing a cognitive decline, it may not necessarily be Alzheimer's disease. It could be any number of other factors. However, uh, it could be Alzheimer's disease, and I think that's why having these regular cognitive uh, checkups might be helpful in the hands of a a qualified neuropsychologist or qualified uh, physicians. They can help determine what that risk is for Alzheimer's disease versus some other reason for that cognitive decline. And just to be with that in mind, just to be optimistic then, if these are simply life stage changes, uh, the effects of aging that aren't potentially that serious, it, it's not Alzheimer's, it's, it's not another more serious condition, perhaps then the information could be used that perhaps if you do change your lifestyle a little bit, that you could actually improve that condition. Yeah, that could always be uh, a possibility, that's correct. And so I think that's why if we have these regular 
cognitive checkups, either from a, a clinical standpoint, or I should say, sometimes you can get these through uh, research participation, participation in research studies. I think all of those possibilities could be on the table. So let's say, perhaps moving ahead a couple of stages in this with the gathering of much more data yeah. on a big data level to yeah. help studies like yours, but uh, at a, an individual level as well, sure. clearly this is something that could potentially help us. Maybe we can't at this stage in the development of the science, we can't stop Alzheimer's. We don't know how ultimately to cure it and we don't know what to do ultimately to stop it occurring in the first place. But perhaps there are things to do in terms of changing our lifestyle Mm -hmm. to at least delay those symptoms. Yes, that's correct. That's usually the most common follow-up question I get after uh, talking about this study is, are there things that anyone can do to help delay Alzheimer's disease or delay or at least um, decrease cognitive decline and aging? And the good news to that is that there are at least uh, a few different things that I think people can do. One is uh, there's a a big emphasis on the importance of cardiovascular health and physical activity and how that promotes brain health. And so there's uh, been study after study just within the last 15, 20 years really showing that our brains are filled with blood vessels. They're filled with blood. And so it makes sense that cardiovascular health would have a huge impact on our brain health just for that reason alone. And so uh, there have been studies that have shown that uh, physical activity actually may not only maintain brain health, but believe it or not, may actually lead to increases in brain regions just in terms of size. Um, And these are in aging cohorts, so older adults, where people are seeing these effects. And so there's really striking evidence to suggest that physical activity, cardiovascular health are incredibly important for brain health. And I can't stress that enough. And so that's something that I need to reiterate just because the evidence seems to be so strong. So let's just delve even more deeply into that. Is there evidence that shows that we can reverse the the progress of Alzheimer's? If we start physical activity at a certain age, perhaps, or let's say when the symptoms have started to occur, sure. is that too late? So I, I, I do believe there are some groups that are trying to study that now. I don't know the answer to that. I don't believe the literature has a, um, an answer to that. Generally speaking, the thing about physical activity is that the earlier you do it, in life, the better. And so uh, those early effects, those early good habits that you can develop carry over into old age. Um, And so uh, the thing about physical activity is that anyone can actually do something more or something more than they might be doing currently. And so there's always the potential to do more than what you're doing now. If you're a marathon runner, you could run an additional marathon. You can train more. Uh, If you never work out, you can just start with some simple exercises. It's, it's, it's one of the most potentially modifiable health factors that you can personally have some control over. And so I think that's a good thing. And just going back to your point about the marathon runner potentially running more marathons or longer yeah. runs, sure. I suppose you must get to a certain... I think a marathon runner is probably doing okay. And you, you, <laughs> you get to a certain point compared yeah. with the rest of the population sure. when uh, uh, you actually are a, a good exerciser. Yeah. I think we're probably talking more crucially about the great swathes of people who do no exercise, sure. which could be improved by even just going for a 30-minute walk a day. That's correct. Uh, or even just doing exercises within a chair if you're chair-bound. I, there's no real excuse to not improve your physical health uh, when it comes to your brain health. 
Do you have any understanding in terms of optimising the benefits of exercise, whether certain exercises are better for you? You talk about cardiovascular health. A lot of people talk about high-intensity training uh-huh. where they go really fast for 30 seconds and, and then rest and then do it again sure. and do it again. Circuit training, that kind of thing, as opposed to just taking that walk around the block or perhaps uh, parking a little bit further away from your office door and uh, taking a longer walk to work or to the train or whatever. Uh, is, is there something we can do to optimize exercise? I, I don't have a, a good answer to that question. I will say that in talking with experts that study this, it, it seems to be the case that aerobic exercise is very important. So whatever increases your heart rate within a healthy range, of course, I think is part of this answer. But in addition, strength training does seem to be also part of this answer as well. So it it can't just be cardiovascular health. It really is just physical health in addition to that. And so, or at least that's, those are the the answers that I get from the people who really know. You mentioned that our brains are full of blood vessels. Yep. What proportion of the brain do we fully understand? (laughs) It's a mysterious organ in so many respects, isn't it? It is. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why I've chosen it as my line of work. Uh, I don't think it's correct to say that we only use some small portion of our brains. I think that's been made a popular media or I don't know if it's a movie thing or, or where it came from, but I would say that it's fair to say that we use quite a bit of our brains. And I don't exactly know what percentage. I don't want to jinx it by saying a number. But I don't think it's just the 5% or 10% that's made its way in popular culture. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah. But so in terms of that's usage of brain, but actual Mm -hmm. understanding of the brain and how it it functions. I've seen, I can't remember numbers, but I've seen quite low percentages put on that in terms of our total Uh, understanding of of how it's functioning and uh, and the different mechanisms at work. Yeah, and that I will say there's quite a lot to understand still about how the brain functions. There's advances every day in neurochemistry. And the thing about the brain, I should take a step back and say, is that there's multiple levels uh, someone can understand the brain at. So there's a neurochemical level, there's an electrical level, there's a a functional level or um, an interaction level, a systems level. And so the field of neuroscience is is one of these fields that I've heard it talked about as really it's you need all the other fields in science to understand the brain. And you need physics and you need chemistry and you need uh, mathematics. And and really uh, it's not a single discipline field of study, the, the area of neuroscience, it's, it's really the more multidisciplinary you can be, I think the more success you can have in understanding the brain. And I, th- I think in that sense, it's, it's somewhat unique. I think neuroscience often gets talked about as a, as a field of its own, but really it's multidisciplinary field of all the different kinds of sciences trying to understand this one thing that we don't have a great grasp on. I, we make advances every day. Every year, we, I think, learn more about the brain. But I, that, that's, that's always been the thing that fascinates me is that, you know, so much of our behavior, um, arguably all of our behavior, is attributable to this, this lump of tissue in our heads in all the vastness of human interactions and feelings and thoughts um, and all of our world of literature or everything we understand about ourselves. It, it all somehow becomes a reality in our brains. And I think not only the sciences are needed, in my opinion, I think 
you know, we're getting in uh, philosophical territory, but I think really it needs philosophy and it needs some of these other fields that I think often don't get used to try to understand the brain because I, I would argue, for example, art is a way to understand the brain. It, it's a way that uh, is different from a hard science, but I, the truth is that art is a manifestation of brain function. And so I think every single discipline that we have applies to our understanding of the brain in some way. And I, I think it, it takes that multidisciplinary approach to understand the brain in a, in a full manner. I think it's perhaps a much underappreciated organ by a lot of people, simply because they don't correlate it with their everyday lives. They're told that, yes, they need more exercise, perhaps to have a, a better diet. And they think mm-hmm. of their heart and the, their muscles sure. and the, the physicality of just getting through the day. Of course, everything starts with the brain. And if yeah. your brain isn't working well, you can't make that decision to take the exercise That's correct. and eat the uh, right foods. That's correct. And, and actually, one of the other areas of, of research of mine is trying to understand how people make decisions, and, and particularly financial decisions. And I don't want to necessarily take this in a different direction, but I've been spending the last you know five or six years of my career really trying to understand um, – how older adults make financial decisions. And it seems to be the case that at least a portion of older adults may not make the best financial decisions, and that leads to incidents of scam and fraud. And I got interested in this area because I started seeing patients refer to me because their family members found that their parent or aunt or uncle were giving away large sums of money to a stranger um, or a random acquaintance. And so they thought, oh, this must be cognitive decline. And basically, I would see them and give them a full battery hours of cognitive testing, and they would come out completely normal from a cognitive standpoint. But there was this clear change in decision-making behavior, particularly with regard to finances, that uh, couldn't really be explained by a change in cognitive functioning. And so so this got me thinking there must be other factors involved in, or at least uh, other factors that may impact how we think and that get manifest in financial decision-making as we get older. And so I've been spending the last few years, uh, five or six years of my career, trying to understand decision-making in addition to understanding the factors that impact cognition. So I'm curious, in your own life, how do you apply the knowledge that you've gained through your work? And you're talking about the brain and talking about how older people respond, perhaps because of the way that their brain is working at a certain stage in their lives. So Mm -hmm. um, what do you do every day for your brain health? Yeah, so uh, I try to work out on a regular basis. I try to incorporate some level of aerobic activity on a weekly basis. I try to watch what I eat in terms of diet. I try to... uh, Actually, the watching of what you eat. So digging into that, what does that mean? Sure. Uh, So I try not to uh, eat uh, high saturated fat foods or high sugar foods. Try to eat organic foods when I can. And I, you know, my wife will be the first to tell you I'm not successful <laughs> in <laughs> well, maintaining that. Well, few of us are that try to do that. It's very difficult, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah, it is. But yeah, I try. And so, I, I, you know, cognitive activity is another way that we maintain our uh, the sharpness of our brains. I think I have a I've been blessed with a profession where I can keep my mind constantly thinking, trying, uh, stretching it to uh, learn new things. And then uh, social activity has also been associated with. Um, positive brain health as well. And so um, positive, engaging social uh, relationships, interactions, um, hobbies, those sorts of things are all what I try to do on a regular basis, but uh, with the busyness of life, obviously. 
that doesn't quite happen. Isolation is a key issue, though, isn't it? Especially as people get older and just losing their partners and becoming isolated, perhaps from their families if they have a small family. People can find themselves lonely and living alone, and, that, and that's a key factor. Yeah, I, I would think so. And, I, and there's been some compelling uh, research, actually, from my colleagues at the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center showing that uh, social activity, late-life social activity, uh, may actually uh, help decrease the cognitive decline that that happens in aging. And so there really is something positive about social activity, particularly as we get older, that may have some sort of protective effect for our brain health. What's interesting is I do many interviews with people from different fields of expertise. I'm mm-hmm. hearing the same messages yeah, coming uh, about social activity, about eating well, about exercising. It's all quite simple. In, in, yeah. if, you, if you take a sort of umbrella view of everything, the, the message at the end of the day often seems to be the same, and that is uh, moderation, good exercise, good diet, and good family, good social bonds all go towards aiding our um, potential longevity. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, I'm curious also, I often ask people this question, mm-hmm. uh, as, as you think about your own longevity. Sure. Do you aspire to a certain age or do you have goals as an individual? That's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. I think every person likes to think that they might live to a ripe old age. I think if I am old enough to see my children succeed in life, I think that will be a good at least initial benchmark. It's interesting in that some people, especially in in your profession, have very clear and determined goals in that area and that they're perhaps a little bit more extreme than than the rest of us might be. Others, as you've reflected, don't really seem to think about it too much and you maybe you're the kind of individual that just prefers to get on with today. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, this this gets at the issue of personality. They're, they're, motivations and personalities are very different from person to person. And successful aging, in that sense, it's a term that gets thrown around in the literature quite often, sometimes can be very subjective and specific to whoever you're talking to. I think if you ask that same question to others, I'd, you will probably get very different responses. And so I'd be interested to hear what others consider um, as their benchmark for aging success. I think for a lot of people, a successful aging is just getting to that key point, maybe it's 80, 85, 90 years old, with Mm -hmm. relatively good health for most of those years. And I think a lot of people then say, let's have a fast decline. Yeah, I think some might say that. I I can tell you some of my patients who are 80, 85, 90 are wanting to be around until they're 120. So (laughs) So, I think you can have it both ways. Just in summarizing, uh, certainly mm-hmm. of the study that we started talking about, your, your takeaway message is that perhaps it would be good if throughout our lives at, at different ages, we had some level of cognitive testing, and that those records were kept so that we could follow up at a certain stage in our lives when perhaps things begin to go wrong, and have that benchmark to work from. That's correct. I think that that could be a uh, beneficial thing to have is uh, just some track record of, some, of your own cognitive functioning uh, throughout your lifetime. I'm sure there are issues that I haven't thought of that that entails, but I, I, I use the analogy of just like our annual physical, and we consider our physical health important enough to recommend checking in about that once a year. I think well, uh, there pr- could be a, a, 
an analogy for cognitive health as well. Presumably, the kind of testing you're talking about could mm -hmm. be part of that annual physical. That would appear to me to be the easiest way to do it. That's correct. Yeah. And I think uh, in, in the hands of a qualified neuropsychologist, I think uh, having that additional piece of information could be uh, beneficial not only for the patient, but the patient's family and everyone else involved. This has been fascinating. Just finally, how optimistic. Alzheimer's is in the news all the time. We yep. hear about it and, and usually in negative terms that it's a very serious condition. More and more people seem to be succumbing to it. How optimistic are you that science is, is on the right track to solve this one? I am a firm believer in science always moving forward in a positive direction. And I, I do believe at some point there will be interventions that could be enacted uh, maybe not today, but in hopefully the near future that can help delay cognitive decline or at least maintain um, some level of brain functioning more so than where we are at today. Dr. Han, thank you very much indeed. Good to be here. Dr. Han is a neuropsychologist and associate professor of family medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California. And that's it for this episode. The Llama Podcast is a Right Angles production. You can contact us through our website at llamapodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Llama Podcast. Thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. -A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.